Good morning, afternoon or evening everyone. My name is Jack Baker and welcome to the second episode of The Plight of the Pangolin. Last time we met our friend the Pangolin, talked to Jamie Ormiston from the Royal Zoological Society of Scotland about the difficulties associated with awareness raising and learned a little bit about this enigmatic creature. On today's show, we are going to be talking about the economic and ecological value of the pangolin with Dr Morgan Hopflash. The reason for this is that Dr Hopflash is an expert in ecosystem services and the important role that pangolin play within their habitats. And while we shouldn't have to always assign animals a value to show how worthwhile they are, it can be helpful to do so just to wrap our heads around their vast importance. But before that, a little bit like last week, I have a bit to say before we jump in. This is because, throughout the conversation, a couple of terms will be thrown around that some listeners might not be fully familiar with. Ecosystem services and ecosystem engineers. Born out of the Millennium Assessment Report, ecosystem services are defined in the United Kingdom Ecosystem Assessment as the benefits provided by ecosystems that contribute to making human life both possible and worth living. These can be anything from the aesthetic value gained by having something present within a landscape, to the monetary value gained by farmers or craftsmen who harness the goods nature provides for them. These are often used to demonstrate that beyond the value nature has in itself, environmental protection has huge benefits for us as humans as well. In his seminal piece, Robert Costanza estimates that when totaled, ecosystem services could be worth as much as $54 trillion a year globally. While this number is debated, it demonstrates the extreme wealth of resources these services provide and the huge economic issues it could cause if environmental services cease to function. Pangolins are therefore extremely important as they have been classified as ecosystem engineers. This means they are extremely influential on their environments and many ecosystem services rely upon them to function. For example, their burrows not only protect them, but they also provide sanctuary for other species, including Travancore tortoise and African bush-tailed porcupine. Additionally, these affect soil processes by providing aeration and turning over organic matter. You can therefore see why these terms might be thrown around in the coming conversation about economic value, and why it was important we get that definition out of the way before we jump in. Having said that, now we understand those terms. Before I get carried away, let's allow the expert to speak. So please enjoy my interview with Dr Morgan Hopflash. Hello everyone, welcome back to the show. I'm now joined by Dr. Morgan Hopflash. Working in Namibia, Dr. Hopflash specialises in wildlife management and human-wildlife conflict. And so he's kindly agreed to join us today to talk a little bit about his work in that area. So first of all, welcome to the show, Morgan. Thank you very much for being here. Thanks a lot, Jack. Thank you. I think, first of all, it would be good for our listeners to get to know you a little bit better. Um, so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what you're working on now in your speciality area. Okay. Well, first of all, I run the Biodiversity Research Center, 
at the Namibia University of Science and Technology. I'm a wildlife, but also an environmental scientist. So I have a uh, background in ecology, wildlife ecology, conservation management, but also in environmental management, more generally in mining, factory, environmental impact and pollution situations. So I've got a bit of both of these, uh, these fields that I, that I deal in. That's very interesting to me because a lot of the people I've spoken to so far have been very focused solely on kind of either the ecology side of it or the social trafficking human element. And I haven't really spoken to anybody who's dealing with the human and the animal and kind of the economic value as, as well, bringing all three of those things together. I know we've talked in the past about the value of wildlife, and I know that's something that you kind of touched upon slightly there. I wondered, kind of just to frame the conversation going forward, why you feel economics can be an effective tool when it comes to the environment? Yeah. Exactly. Okay, well, as we know, in, in the world as it is today, although it's been thrown a little bit on its head with um, the pandemic that we have at the moment, but still, if you look at governments, if you look at decision-making around the world, it's based on money. Well, two things, money and votes, really, if you look at politics, but we can talk about the other one at a different time. And in conservation, we've generally, over the years, the thinking has been, well, why do you conserve biodiversity? Why do you conserve, well, this animal mustn't go extinct because my grandchildren want to see it and all that. And that doesn't really cut it when it comes to the high-level decision-making. So as conservationists, we've had to go and look at, okay, well, what is the value of biodiversity for people? And, you know, intrinsically for a conservationist, it's not really nice. Oh, no, we have to look at it from the animal's perspective. Well, if you look at making an impact in the world in conservation, you have to go that way because that's the only thing that the politicians and the decision makers really understand. So, so valuing wildlife and ecosystem services is something that's therefore really important. Mm. My background is in international relations, and I think the one thing that I learned over that degree is if you're trying to sell something to somebody, even though you might not like putting a, a, a number on it and a value on it, it can be extremely helpful just to kind of get a picture in people's minds of what scale of things they're dealing with or what the importance of the things that they are they're dealing with. I also think it's important at the beginning of this interview, just establish for people listening as well, that you are obviously in Namibia and the ownership of wildlife is very different there to perhaps in the UK and in Europe. So I was wondering if you could, just to give a little bit more scene setting for the, the audience, what kind of system operates in Namibia in kind of contrast to the, the UK? Sure. I think, I think the most important thing is that Namibia is the second least populated country in the world by area. So dense, the, the density of population. Um, and we do have a lot of pristine wildlife areas because of that. So development hasn't been, I mean, it, it is developed, but not excessively so. And um, Namibia started in the, already in the mid-1970s to allow private ownership over biodiversity, over wildlife, and said that we, our policy and going forward, even since independence in 1990, even in our constitution, says that our biodiversity is there for conservation, but also sustainable use. So there was already an acknowledgement that biodiversity has to have a positive impact to the livelihoods of people. And we have people and wildlife together. In most parts of the world, you have wildlife fenced in, in the middle of an island of development. Whereas in Namibia, you have a lot of open systems where wildlife, biodiversity, tourism, hunting happen in an area mixed in with 
farming activities with villages, towns, um, even which are in the middle of this. And wildlife can move freely between these areas. And then also, if I, if I go back to conservation-wise, so we have national parks, we have privately owned nature reserves, which used to be farms that are owned by people, and they decide to do conservation either by themselves or with neighbors. And then we have the communal land, the traditional tribal land, which covers quite a large proportion of the country, where communities can come together, have a conservation decision, and that allows them to get ownership over wildlife. It's also resulted in some areas where wildlife has been moved from national parks to communal areas where people are um, conducting their sort of general livelihood activities based on a conservation, a common conservation management plan in those communities. I think a lot of people listening to this will be quite, I don't know, shocked by almost the reliance in so many different aspects on the, the environment and the kind of, there's more links than you could probably possibly imagine. But I also think what's quite interesting and what might have flagged up in a couple of people's mind is when you mentioned hunting and conservation yeah. kind of in the same breath. Because I think a lot of people are programmed to, immediately their response to hunting is always, this is bad. I was wondering if you could explain how that kind of relationship works. Okay, I, I love sharing this too, because we, we're in we're really on the ground. And in, in terms of a researcher, we're in these communities and working with them. But I acknowledge and I quite understand that it's an extremely counterintuitive idea that to conserve animals, you've got to uh, utilize them or their services. So it's not only hunting, it's hunting, um, tourism. We understand tourism, more of that. But that, that putting a bullet in an animal is actually conserving the species. So it is, it is a, a, um, a difficult subject. Now, if you if you remember, I did talk about the communities being able to own and sustainably utilize wildlife. Uh, and I keep that sustainably word because I and I can defend it as well. If you're in a community in Namibia, um, if you're growing crops, for example, if you're a crop farmer, you grow a crop and elephants come around and they destroy your entire crop. And that crop is a very important part of your livelihood for that season. And suddenly it's gone, which can leave you hungry for the year. You're not going to have a very positive view towards those elephants. And the sustainable use strategy says that, well, if that elephant population can be proven to be stable or growing, a growing population, and you can identify, let's say, a post-productive bull elephant, um, which might be one of the, one of the um, instigators in terms of causing the crop damage, then you would want to, um, you would be able to have that animal hunted by a trophy hunter and value from that. And you can get $100,000 for a trophy hunted elephant. That money would go towards the livelihood and compensating for the loss that that community has. And it will also cause that community to protect the, that um, resource better because in future, they could also get that sort of benefit from them. Um, if they didn't have that alternative, what would they do? They would illegally shoot that elephant or as many of the elephants as they can. They would poison the water source. Or, and if, if that's your livelihood, what would you do? So sitting in a comfortable air-conditioned um, penthouse in France, let's say, and saying, well, I love elephants. That, you know, that community, how could you? How dare you? Boycott Namibia because um, they're shooting elephants is also something that um, is not 
right. And I think it's based on the perception that hunting um, just destroys. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not a, a trophy hunter. Yes, I hunt for meat occasionally. As a conservationist, I do that. But I don't get the whole thrill behind trophy hunting an animal just to have a trophy and a campfire story to tell. But hey, if the money is coming in and it's going to the communities to do that, and it is a sport that's being done and it's not affecting the population, then it's a good thing for conservation. I, yeah, I think sometimes people forget that in these environments, it is not just the animals that exist. There are also people there. And as much as people might love animals, you can't just all of a sudden go in and say, oh, well, we like elephants, so you can't touch the elephants. It'll just throw it off balance and they'll then create more issues down the line. So just on that point, uh, another thing is um, it's important that when we look at conservation of species, the, the world and yourselves um, in the UK or in Europe would say, well, we read everywhere that elephants or rhinos are critically endangered animals. So the global population of elephants are in trouble. But yet, if you look at it in a local sense, for example, a country that's doing good conservation, let's take Botswana or Namibia, for example. Uh, the Namibian population is proven to have been growing. That country would make a decision at a local stage and say, well, these elephants in this area are overpopulated. They've got nowhere to go. So let's trophy hunt a few also to keep the population, the local population in check and prevent it from destroying the ecosystem, which an overpopulation of elephants can very likely do. In not doing anything about those populations, we are doing more harm to the ecosystem in terms of the damage that an overpopulation of elephants in a local area can do than what we would if we had hunted a few of those elephants. But also, um, elephants in West Africa, for example, where the forest elephant populations are really endangered and threatened by poaching, you would obviously have a different strategy and hunting would not be part of that strategy. Following up on that thought slightly, I was wondering if there was an example of perhaps a species that you maybe in the past it was allowed hunting and now it's been, been limited given changing circumstances or previously wasn't allowed to be hunted and now given a changing circumstances people are more open to to the possibility of regulating that population? Or is it kind of a constantly moving target with these things that's being reassessed? It is constantly moving. So mm -hmm. there are annual counts of the, of, of the wildlife. In terms of the strategy of, I mean, one of the biggest issues or the biggest threat to our global biodiversity is the shrinking of areas and the increase in human population, which prevents animals to have their um, natural areas where they can migrate perhaps out of one area towards another area. So people say, well, leave the populations. It's a natural process. Well, natural hasn't been around for the last hundred years. So we have to manage the um, wildlife in certain ways to be able to allow for conservation to take place. I think that's been very helpful because I think a lot of people automatically assume and make these links between hunting and, and bad. And obviously some species like pangolin that we're focusing on, people aren't going out there and legally hunting pangolin would be my perspective on it. I... Yeah, a species like pangolin, for example, uh, which is a rare animal and a, an extremely endangered animal. Um, with a, let's say the population wouldn't be large enough to have 
um, saturated any of its of its environment for a species like that legal hunting would not be allowed at this stage at all because we know the populations everywhere are declining it's also not a species i think that would provide a lot of value in terms of a, of legal hunting because remember that the trade in pangolin being illegal is there's only thing that makes it valuable and there is no legal trade i think also some people look at hunting as being poaching and poaching is illegal hunting so that's unregulated wherever that's opportunistic so when we talk hunting we're talking about a regulated industry with sustainable herds of animals where benefits go to conservation and to communities when we're talking poaching you're talking illegal hunting and the economics going into the dodgy syndicates around the world mm. that actually leads us quite nicely onto something else i wanted to ask you about which was a lot of the time when i've been looking for information on on pangolin there seems to be a knowledge gap in the kind of illegal side of the trade there i know that in recent years the trade of pangolin has shifted. Now more shipments are being taken out of Africa to China, Vietnam, rather than hunting in Asia itself. I was wondering if you could kind of give us a perspective on wildlife crime in Namibia. Yeah, it is um, tricky to find accurate data, but I'll, I'll explain one of the reasons why that might be. But if you look at illegal wildlife trade in Namibia, the, the pangolin situation has closely followed the rhino situation. Rhino poaching really became um, an issue about, I think about 2012, it started to become really a problem in, in Namibia. Mm. So there was a lag, but the, the increase, the sort of exponential increase in, in poaching, um, in the focus on Southern Africa and Namibia specifically, has been quite phenomenal. And one of the reasons for that is that there was extensive poaching of rhino and pangolin in Asia for quite a number of years. And now those populations are really, really low. So it's very difficult to still find the Asian species. So Africa is a potential because we still have high populations of our species. Um, so that's one of the reasons why that, that um, has come here. And, you know, another, I think, influence on you not being able to find a lot of data around it is Namibia has a policy of not sharing a lot of data about highly trafficked and endangered species. Some other countries do do that, but Namibia specifically doesn't because of the information that can then go to the, to, um, the traffickers, whether it be about where we've bolstered our um, anti-poaching operations or areas where there have been specific hunting uh, or poaching issues where the illegal trade might be able to know because the intelligence industry in the um, illegal trade is extremely sophisticated. Um, it's not just you know, local people and go going and hunting a couple of animals and trying to get them into the China market. It is very sophisticated. So we are very careful with what we share. Also, what doesn't help is when people value these animals publicly and say, oh, pangolin scales by the kilogram are more than platinum, for example. I I'm not saying that's the case. That's just an e example. Is also not um, really productive because that would say to communities, oh, wow, look at the value of pangolins. I never thought about that. Let me try and hunt a few.
Yes, I think it's all about teaching or letting people know the value of these animals is often greater when they are alive than when they are being shipped across the world in crates in a very horrifying fashion. Kind of continuing on that train of thought, there's been reports from a lot of places that in light of the COVID situation and what's going on now, these kind of wildlife crimes and hunting and poaching have actually increased because the normal ways of making money have obviously been shut down or limited. I was wondering if that was the situation in in Namibia. Well, as far as I know, we haven't seen that trend here, but the potential for that happening is extremely high. A lot of the value out of wildlife and biodiversity in Namibia is from tourism. And as you know, the tourism trade has been totally flattened, got a left hook from COVID-19. So we are at the moment really, really struggling from a conservation perspective to say, okay, how do we get value for livelihoods in a time where there's no tourism in Namibia? So the threat is there again, what I spoke about earlier in the elephant grading people's crop fields, that people would go to um, the illegal trade. Oh, okay. So it's, I guess that's good news in the Namibia case, but in the short term, but we'll have to, it's kind of a developing issue. So it might be something worthwhile checking in on a little bit down the line just to see if things have, have changed or how they develop. I think that's right. Also, just to add, uh, in a lot of other parts of Africa, um, the threats to pangolin and other species is the, is the bushmeat trade. Mm. With Namibia, it's not that much of a case, but I think if people are really struggling, not just from lack of tourism, but from all businesses, all livelihoods around the world, your impact on bushmeat, so people going out and finding more illegal protein sources is going to be on the increase as well. That's interesting to me, actually, because I think, again, a lot of the information that I found on on bushmeat and on kind of people using them in more traditional recipes or cultural ceremonies and things have been from um, a lot of things from Tanzania and Uganda and then less so Namibia. So it's interesting to hear that perhaps it's less so the case now that pangolin are used, but it could develop that way. I think one of the, one of the reasons and, you know, as science here from our biodiversity research center is we need more research on that in Namibia. It might exist, but we haven't really done research to, to look at it. And what's interesting from a Southern African perspective, pangolins are culturally, in some cultures, seen as a token of luck. So keeping a pangolin as a pet, so if, if people find a pangolin, and it's quite easy to catch a pangolin because as soon as you threaten it, it rolls up into a ball. So people collect them. And if you can give that to your chief or to your future father-in-law as a gift, it's an amazing sort of superstition that it will bring luck. That's, You've probably read about that. Yes. Um, one of the stories that sticks in my mind was, it was from southern Tanzania, I believe. Um, and a group there would take the pangolin um, from the wild. They believed it came as a gift from their ancestors. They'd take the pangolin and perform a cultural ceremony. If the pangolin cried during the ceremony, it was said to be a omen of rains coming. Um, and if it didn't, it was said to be a bad omen that there wouldn't be any rain. And then once they were kind of finished with the, the pangolin, I can't remember, it was the Sangu, I believe, the group. The, That's interesting. Yeah, the, they said that the, they would then return the animal to the earth, which sometimes meant dispatching it and sometimes meant burying it while it was still alive. But the... The author, I can't remember the name of the author off the top of my head, but the 
when they'd been speaking to people said that it kind of varied depending on situation which was it's not the most cheery story but it's interesting to no. see how different cultures use these still have massive respect for these animals but use them in in very different ways to what we would kind of in the west consider to be respectful things it's it's interesting to kind of have that that different perspective so jumping back on the conversation we were having a little bit or a second ago about the kind of illegal trade because you were kind of talking about the pangolin doesn't have as much or it's not known if the pangolin has as much cultural significance i was reading the un's um 2020 wildlife crime report and it talks about how in uganda things like the ivory trade are taken very very seriously whereas pangolin are taken a lot less seriously because they're seen as less of a crime so gangs when they discuss Ivory will use very covert language, try and hide things up as much as they can. And in Pangolin, they don't see as much of an issue. Because they have less of a cultural significance, would you say that that's similar to the case? Or, or is that not really the case in Namibia as well? It is. It definitely is. These charismatic species mm. um, is something that's sort of grabbed upon. And, that, you know, not just locally, but I think internationally. I think it's interesting that there's been a... a good and useful outcry about pangolins now. Mm. Uh, and that probably just shows what the volume of trade is in these animals. But yeah, you're right. If um, if it was a, you know, I think the pangolin is still lucky in that it's a, it's a, um, a sort of a curious creature, not one that you see much. But if it was a critically, if it was a rodent or something, I think that species would be toast just because it, um, it doesn't sort of evoke the same emotions as some of the other species might. Actually, that reminds me of a conversation I was having very recently with some of my friends from my conservation course, which was we were discussing there was there's an island off South Africa that has become infested with rats, which are eating the bird's eggs. And the, the dilemma in conservation of, well, do you poison all of the rats and get rid of them? because they are harming the birds and most people said yes and it was a very easy decision but then we kind of reframed it as well if it was elephants stomping on the the eggs that were kind of crushing everything and destroying everything and preventing the birds from breeding would you still make the decision so quickly or would you have to take a second to kind of with this almost western bias of we see elephants as these wonderful things would you have to take a step back and, and reflect upon it, it more so i guess the pangolin is is lucky in a way that it is once people realise what it is, it's very charismatic. We kind of touched on it there, and we've kind of mentioned it a couple of times throughout the interview, is this idea of pangolin being compared to these kind of larger charismatic megafauna, rhino, elephant. I was wondering if we could kind of shift, change lanes slightly and talk a little bit about ecosystem services. And to start that conversation, I was wondering if you could explain to the audience how you would define ecosystem services and, and what they are. Okay, well, I, I'm glad you got onto that because that's an interesting one. So um, ecosystem services in general are the services that biodiversity and its interaction with the non-living resources, the soils, the, the air, the water have for humans. And that's, I think, um, one that we haven't really explored enough for pangolins. We know pangolins eat ants and termites, and termites are a competitor with farmers, with uh, grazing for cattle. They, they can eat, I mean, an astounding amount of 
grazing, which could be used to raise cattle or even wildlife um, production. So I think in, in those terms, the pangolins do help to limit the populations of ants and termites in the environment. They also, again, transform those animals into nutrients that go back into the soil by eating the animals. But some research, and this is, a, this is an, uh, one of my sort of pet research directions, is how burrowing animals, especially in an arid environment like Namibia, help with the productivity of an ecosystem in general by allowing aeration of soil, allowing water infiltration. Remember, in an arid country, our rainfall is about 350 millimeters per year, and our evaporation rate is about 10 times that much, 2,500. So if we can get water away from the surface very quickly, that surface can remain available to the ecosystem a lot more. So burrowing species like pangolin are extremely important in that in terms of increasing the productivity of land or maintaining the productivity of land in a certain sense. So that's what we've directly been able to research. And we do have evidence that this actually happens. That's incredibly interesting because I think a lot of people assume it's the bigger animals that kind of go along, stomp down things, eat lots, that are the most influential on their habitats. But I guess, would you say then that pangolin are just as important as an elephant to, to an environment? Well, that's a question we need to answer. And that's, you know, a lot of the research, and you spoke earlier about knowledge gaps. And I think that's one of the big knowledge gaps that we do have. The Southern African pangolin, which is the Temenix ground pangolin, it has um, a very different ecology than, let's say, the giant tree pangolins from Western Central Africa. So I think it's important for you to know that this is for the Temenix ground pangolin that we have the knowledge at the moment. But, you know, the let's say elephants. Elephants are known as ecosystem engineers. So I think in terms of, of what an elephant can do to an area, it could be positive and it could also be negative. And the balance of that is quite fine. There have been a lot of studies that have been done where elephants are locally overpopulated and they result in an extreme decrease in biodiversity in an area. On the opposite sense, they can act as bulldozers. They can open up landscapes that have been bush encroached. We know that increases in carbon uh, from carbon from climate change has also made savannas close up a lot with bush and decreasing the availability of grass for animals, that sort of thing. So elephants are important in that sense. We don't really know the pangolins. We do know, however, from the research that we have done is there are a lot more pangolins than what there are elephants from the research that we've done. And I think that's also an, an, uh, an interesting effect. So if you look at the cumulative effect that all these pangolins are doing. Sure, I would say that they have a more important role, but because they are nocturnal and you hardly ever see them, people do not look at that at all if they are making decisions surrounding the conservation of the species. I was wondering if the biggest challenge you had was this fact that they are nocturnal and, and hidden away. When you're trying to study ecosystem services and get people to perhaps want to invest their time and their effort into looking into species like pangolin? Is that the biggest challenge, that they are hidden away and kind of less a less pronounced species? Or are there other challenges that you face when you're trying to get attention onto these species? No, I think you're quite right. Um, that's probably the biggest challenge in terms of studying them is being able to find them. Now, I, I've been in conservation in the field. I've been doing a lot of field work myself. And in my lifetime, I've only come across pangolin twice. 
if you look at, and that probably is about an average for a person who's actually a field person. So it just shows you how really they're seen. Um, so studying them, yes, it requires a lot of night work. And we are at the moment actually researching um, how you find them, how can you survey to find them more, and also working with people who've been caught with pangolins that are trying to traffic them. How are they so successful in finding these pangolins and then using that for the research? But it is, it's extremely tricky for a researcher to be, to sort of totally switch and also become nocturnal. Not everybody can do that. They often occur in very remote areas under thick bush. You have to be a pretty robust scientist to study them. Mm, that's interesting to me, actually, especially the, the point that you raised about working with the people who were caught trafficking kind of work out working with them in conservation again is about challenging these ideas that are built up in people's minds where hunting always thought of as bad can be useful working with the people who are then doing these activities illegal or attempting to do these activities illegally again can can be useful i wondered if there was another difficulty i suppose associated with ecosystem services is when you are trying to sell these ideas to to local people because you've got the I suppose with an elephant, an elephant comes and eats their crops. That's a very visible impact of what an elephant does. And then, and then when it leaves again, or when it brings hunters into who want to, to um, shoot or trophy hunt an elephant, a very, again, a very visible impact. I was wondering if it was harder to sell the pangolin as something that's important to local people in terms of ecosystem services, because it is smaller and perhaps less pronounced in its effect. It, it, is, a, it is a very hard sell. And, and I think one of the reasons, that, like you said, it's it's not really visible. It's an indirect impact and it's often a long-term impact. So it's it's not an impact that you see immediately. It would be something along the line that you see. So it is a really difficult sell, particularly for, for communities, for farmers, let's say. So an, an easier one, one of the easiest sells for these things is always the the sort of emotional thing about responsibility, you know, towards creation or towards biodiversity of the earth. So yeah, we do we do struggle with the ecosystem service side of things. But then again, you you could take that a little further in terms. Well, can we value that? Um, so we can we could put a monetary value to that ecosystem service. Then people's ears prick up. So if you can say that. Um, Water infiltration leads to more grass production, and we know how much grass is needed for a kilogram of, of beef for a beef farmer. So we can value that improvement in Namibian dollars per hectare, then maybe we've got something. That's really interesting. Do you think it then, I suppose, the we talked about ecosystem services and how putting a number on things can be very useful. Do you think it's kind of easier then when you're dealing with government and businesses perhaps to use this value but then when you're dealing with communities and local people who are seeing these animals and things is it more effective or in your experience has it been more effective to kind of say use the more emotional argument or is the economics still useful there um, I, I think the economics is less useful when you're particularly when you're looking at subsistence farmers which a large portion of Namibia would be 
Um, commercial farmers, I think they would get that. And also remember, you're not dealing with an animal, which if you kill it, you're actually solving any problem for yourself. It's more about the greed of getting the money out of it. Whereas with a species like elephants or predators like lions, you would want to go out and kill it because it's destroying your uh, your livelihood in a direct way. So we, we yeah, I don't think we've taken this far enough in Namibia or in the world, actually, in terms of trying to sell the ecosystem services to local communities who are um, impoverished, let's say. Do you think that's something you would like to work on in the future then? Well, we're just starting up a new process. I, I am an ecologist, I'm a biologist by profession, so, um, and I, I'm diversified enough as it is, but we are starting up a biodiverse, biodiversity um, economics arm in our research center, mm -hmm. and we're looking to employ an economist that would look at this. So that would be a very interesting. So we're looking to take an economist and stretch them a little bit in terms of conservation biology and let them do those valuations because I think it is pretty specialized and there's a big um, risk in it becoming ridiculous voodoo arithmetic, if you know what I mean. I do not think the, the sort of, uh, for example, that this global number about, well, pollination, pollination is worth so many trillions of dollars in the world because I think I think for most people that's that seems just too far of a stretch of the ecosystem services um, thing look at it look at it at a local level look at the valuation in terms of like products let's say in in a local context so I think that that becomes a little bit more believable so therefore getting an economist into this is is something that we are really keen on I think what I've kind of established from talking to people so far is that bringing these ideas and disciplines together can be exceptionally productive and kind of bringing um, people who you might not necessarily think, oh, why would an economist be used in conservation? Why would um, someone who specializes in human trafficking be useful for wildlife trafficking? Why would that bringing these and making these links is, is very important? Um, is that something you kind of would also say that the interdisciplinary nature of conservation in this way is, is important? Absolutely. And I want to give you a very simple example. One of Namibia's most effective conservationists is an ex-London banker. <laughs> that is, if anything, the complete opposite, you would think, to conservation and these kind of development ideas, because I don't know, you would think capitalism and that idea kind of goes against everything uh, that's very interesting it is and being so, able to understand local economics um, being able to bring a a sort of a um how should i say that taking assets whether they are natural assets or whether they are whether they are the normal capitalist assets and valuing and protecting those assets and growing those assets to produce um, livelihoods is exactly what we were talking about in terms of ecosystem services. So you can apply those, those rules to ecosystem services. And the same goes for governance, for law, um, there is for criminology, for, for policing and forensics. 
conservation is one of those industries where there's a role for each of them to play. And I think Namibia is one of the examples where we do work together in terms of that. So, you know, we, we still have to write up some case studies, I think. I think it'll be very useful. That's very interesting. I guess uh, a good place to kind of start rounding out the, the interview today, because I think it's a kind of a hopeful and encouraging note to, to leave on. I guess, though, my final question and, and thing that I would want to, to ask would be if you could give the listeners maybe one takeaway from our conversation today, if there was something that you've talked about that stuck out in your mind that is exceptionally important and you would like them to go away and think about, or if they're perhaps thinking, oh, what, what lesson should I have learned from, from the discussion I've listened to today? What would you want them to, to take away from it? Oh, goodness, Jack. <laughs> That's a tough one. <laughs> I don't have to go back into the recording to, to find one. But um, okay, I, I think the most important takeaway is that understanding a local context to a conservation problem or a conservation issue, whether it be hunting or whether it be illegal trafficking, is extremely important. And judging what's right or wrong based on being outside the bubble of people trying to make a living, because that's what everyone around the world is trying to do, to make a living. And it's extremely difficult at the moment, actually. Um, being outside the bubble where people are, are trying to make a livelihood in their conditions, and then making judgment calls which could affect those livelihoods negatively is really counterproductive, and I think is actually harming conservation more than helping it. Okay, I think that, that? Is, that is an excellent chunk of knowledge. I think it's <laughs> excellent food for thought. Thank you very much for your time today. It's, it's been great sharing this anytime. Thank you. Welcome back. I hope you all enjoyed the insights from Morgan there on the value of wildlife. I think it's exceptionally interesting and important to hear about the human aspects of conservation, especially in places like the UK where we take nature so much for granted and don't rely upon it quite so integrally. What was also thought-provoking to hear about is the contextualisation issue. Really thinking about what actions take place where and when is a theme we will see emerging throughout the coming episodes with other issues, such as the coronavirus pandemic. And so it's interesting to hear it brought up here as well. Finally, what is interesting is the different cultural experiences of Morgan compared to the guests we have joining us on the next show. Her name is Kelsey Prediger, and she is a researcher also working in the field in Namibia, where Morgan seems to have very little exposure to Namibian cultural practices relating to the pangolin, she has a wealth of these kinds of experiences. So it really highlights again the challenges of working with the pangolin, because even within Namibia, not all knowledge is universal. 
If this cultural use of pangolin interests you, it really is worthwhile tuning into the next show. Additionally, she's going to be telling us a little bit about the threats facing the species, as well as a little bit about her experiences working in the field. It really is one of my absolute favourite interviews, so it's worth tuning in just to listen to what she has to say. With that being said, all that remains for today's show is to conclude. So again, a massive thank you to Morgan for sharing his experiences and teaching us the value of pangolin. And until next time, thank you very much for listening.